It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh, and I am incredibly excited to be here with award-winning journalist Mark Fullman, who has written a new book called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, I, I want to start um, with the very famous article that is published every time there is a mass shooting in America by the satirical publication The Onion. I'm sure you've seen it. it. The headline is, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Um, my question to you is, 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 it, is that an accurate assessment? Have other countries figured out how to prevent this? Are there steps that we should be taking that we simply aren't? Well, in fact, we have figured out how to prevent this in some ways. Yeah. The focus of the book. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned the Onion headline. I actually use that in the book. Uh, <laughs> later on when I'm discussing uh, our, our kind of popular national narratives and myths about this problem and how the media covers it. And, and of course, it's, its brilliance is going right at the irony of, of, of how we sort of treat this as something that we, we can't possibly figure out or resolve. And that's just not true. There's, there's a lot we can do to make progress on this problem, as I write about in Trigger Points. So let's talk about behavioral threat assessment. Tell me what that is and how we should be using it here. So behavioral threat assessment is a community-based violence prevention method. It's existed for roughly four decades. Um, it remains relatively unknown, which is interesting because it is going on all over the country. Um, and so in some ways it's, it's broad-based, in other ways it's, it's still nascent. Um, it is a process of identifying and evaluating and then working to intervene with people who are potentially planning violence, who are maybe turning dangerous. Um, it is focused on the process that leads up to acts of what the field calls targeted violence, which is primarily mass shootings, although there are other forms of it as well. Um, and the, the teams who do this work are focusing on the behaviors and circumstances that lead up to an attack, identifying patterns of behavior within that, and then working to intervene ideally constructively, that's, that's the core mission of the work, to essentially um, step in and help people who really need help in many of these cases. Um, it's a matter of trying to avert violence while also getting help to people who really need it. Uh, that's the, the dual goal of, of the work. So what are some of the behaviors that folks are on the lookout when they're trying to assess who might become violent or dangerous in a mass shooting kind of way? Yeah, and so I should add too that this is a, a collaborative effort that uses multidisciplinary expertise, mental health, law enforcement. In a school setting, you have educators involved, administrators, counselors, psychologists. Um, in a workplace setting, you have personnel specialists and HR people involved on threat assessment teams. And so what they're looking for is there, there's kind of these broad-based categories I describe in the book. Um, there's a whole range of warning behaviors, but one I think that that the public is generally familiar with is what's called threatening communications. Mm -hmm. So in a, lot, in a lot of these cases, we see after the fact that, you know, the person who was planning a mass shooting was talking about it, was commenting to peers or coworkers, 
was posting disturbing content on social media. We see, of course, a lot of that now in our current media environment, um, other forms of this expression. There's actually a term for it in the field called leakage. Uh, hmm. It comes out of the, the uh, kind of interesting history of the FBI hunting serial killers. Um, it was a term originally developed in that context that talks about how someone who's planning violence, predatory violence, will give off signals about it. Um, so that's one area that, that threat assessors will look at, but there's a whole range of, of circumstances and issues they'll look at in a specific case. Um, you know, a person's uh, mental health conditions, their employment or educational situation. There's often a, a picture of deterioration going on with an individual. They're dropping out of school or they're not doing well at work or getting laid off, um, having financial trouble. All of these things taken together, it's a, it's a broad-based analysis of a, of a person's situation, um, both to gauge the level of potential danger, you know, looking for signs that they may be thinking about violence or planning violence, and then also what the root issues are with the person and how best to intervene. Do you, do you advocate for taking domestic violence more seriously as a precursor to a mass shooting event? It feels like often when we hear these stories, the shooting actually started at home before they ever got to the mall or the movie theater or um, whatever whatever area they were ultimately going to target. Is is that the kind of behavioral threat assessment that we should be making? Where if someone you know if someone has threatened a member of their own household, that ought to put them on a a much more serious watch list. Say like you know children abusing animals, making them baby be marked for, maybe we should, we should do some, some threat assessments to them as they grow up. Like, is that something that we should be looking at when it comes to adults and domestic violence? Yeah, well, I'm really glad that you asked about this element, Jess, because it's an important one. And I've found that in my own continued research into the problem of mass shootings and some of the reporting I've done for Mother Jones and in the book, um, and this is something that the field has become increasingly focused on too as a warning factor. I wanna clarify, it's important for people to realize mm -hmm. that this approach is, there's no single thing that, that, that tells threat assessment specialists or anyone else that a person is turning violent. And there's no way to predict violence. This isn't a predictive method, it's a prevention method. So right. by identifying patterns of behavior and circumstances ahead of this attack and what we know and have learned about that, through this work, it affords the opportunity to intervene. But there's no such thing as profiling a mass shooter, predicting who's gonna do this based on, you know, what kind of person they are, their racial or ethnic background or characteristics. It doesn't work, that's a myth. Um, but there are some really important factors that the field has become aware of and domestic violence is one of them. Um, there are a lot of mass shooting cases where that is in the mix explicitly, that a, a perpetrator has that in, his background. And so when that comes up in a set of um, warning signs and, and background in a, in a person of concern, it's very important to look at. Yeah, it, it feels like that gets, that gets glossed over a lot. It also feels like if mass shootings were carried out 95% of the time by women say, we would be talking about that as an interesting fact and possibly one that yes. could be helpful when trying to prevent these kinds of tragedies. Does the fact that, that these perpetrators are overwhelmingly male, does, does that, should that, I guess is the better question, enter into the calculation at all when discussing prevention? 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because gender comes up a lot in the context of mass shootings because it is overwhelmingly a male act, right? Mm -hmm. But again, this points to the core challenge one of the core challenges of this work that I was describing, which is that it's not predictive. It, gender as information in, in threat cases is, isn't helpful, right? Because right. There, there's <laughs> lots just of men, <laughs> lots I mean, of men will lot never men, become right? mass shooters, even That's if they right. lose their They're, jobs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The vast majority of men and even men who, who have lots of problems with, you know, right. um, work struggle or financial or relationships or maybe angry would never dream of committing a mass shooting. So it's not useful in that kind of fundamental sense. However, it, it is of course uh, very much characteristic of the problem itself. And so then the question becomes what else taken together with the picture of that can be meaningful, right? And so then it again is a, is a, a whole range of behaviors and circumstances that start to reveal patterns um, in men who, the very small number of men who may be thinking about committing this kind of planned violence. So, so let's talk about what happens in the event that a person is uh, a person is understood to be at risk of becoming violent in this way. They have all of the extenuating factors that we've just discussed, plus ready access to guns, plus maybe you know a couple of darkly turning social media posts. Like all of the all the factors are there. We're worried. What should happen in that case? You're not talking about like a minority report situation where we're going to go like pre-arrest that person and put them in jail for the crime of, of thinking about maybe doing something. What, what happens? What's the intervention there? Yeah, that's right. Well, and that's a really important distinction with this too, that it's not a matter of broad-based surveillance. It's not intended to be punitive or, you know, pre-arrest or deal with pre-crime, those sort of dystopian mm -hmm. concepts we know of. Um, the way that it works is when, you know, the threat assessment teams are dealing with people who come to their attention primarily through ordinary people raising a hand and saying, hey, I'm really worried about my coworker who's doing this and this over here and I'm freaked out and help. Um, right. Or the same thing in a school setting. Um, there are a lot of cases that I chronicle in the book where you can see this process in action. I, I felt that was really important to, to show people how this works. You can explain the concept, but it's you know kind of hard to relate to and it raises those concerns about surveillance and civil liberties. And so I focus in particular on this in a school setting in part because I felt that's where it had the most promise. And, and I'd learned about some really um, remarkable cases. There, there's a school system in Oregon called the Salem-Kaiser School District that was one of the pioneers of this in a school setting. Um, after Columbine. They were one of the first programs in the country to build a, a team. And I tell the story of a case of a kid named Brandon, a high school junior who um, in 2019 was threatening to bring a gun to school. He was, he was making comments or, you know, it wasn't clear whether he was threatening or maybe he was joking, but, you know, peers overheard him saying this and grew worried and reported yeah. it. Um, and so what the team did was to quickly gather a lot of information around Brandon, talking to his peers, his teachers, uh, going and talking with the family. Um, he'd made some very specific statements about how he was going to get a gun. He'd, he'd obtained the code to his father's gun safe at home. He talked about the day he was going to come shoot up the school. So this was very concerning because that kind of specificity, right. in addition to these other factors. Indicates a plan. Exactly. It, it was suggestive of a more uh, concrete plan, right? Um, they, the team was, was aware of some other 
behavioral and mental health issues going on with the kid. They were, they were worried that Brandon might be suicidal, which is a very important factor in a lot of these cases. A lot of mass shooters are suicidal. Um, it was one of my early findings in researching mass shootings starting a decade ago. And so uh, what they do is they step in and give kind of close constructive interventions to try to help a kid in a situation like this. They are offering him counseling. They're giving him independent educational support. Uh, they're working with the family whenever they can. That's not always possible. We, we saw a really disturbing case recently in Michigan yes. where, you know, the parents' role was very starkly not cooperative. Um, and no, I, I just kept thinking of that one as you're explaining yeah. what the warning signs are. I was like, that particular shooter displayed all of the warning signs that that you mentioned. He actually yeah. wrote that he needed help and and didn't didn't receive it from the parents. Right, but I can tell you that even in cases more like that, not, not that extreme, but more like that where, where parents are uncooperative or maybe dismissive, because I think it's, it's very hard in many cases for parents to see their own child as turning right. potentially dangerous, right? Um, threat assessment teams have been successful in intervening in the setting of a school. Um, and, and there are some workplace examples too, where you know uh, initial sort of hostility is overcome through this approach. Because one of the things that has been learned through this field, through lots of years of research and, and, and actual casework, is that many people in this situation are in fact receptive to help. Um, I think right. this speaks to one of the big myths that we have about mass shootings. And I write about this at length in Trigger Points, that we constantly recycle this idea that mass shooters are insane monsters. And we kind of sensationalize it that way. That basically allows us distance from the issue in a certain sense, right? We, we don't relate to it. We can't explain it. But that's not true. We can explain it. These are people... Um, you know, doing human behaviors that we can't understand. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, the research shows that many are receptive to help. And there are a lot of cases where that has been successful. So I think that is very promising. So, so what's in the way of having a, a threat assessment team like the one that Oregon had for, for Brandon's case? Like what, what's in the way of, of having that on a wider scale nationally? I, that's not a solution that I've even heard on the table. It's all about restricting access to guns. This feels very different and like something that would be fairly politically tenable to, you know, either side of the aisle on this issue. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really drew me to this as a book subject is because it, it is fundamentally, I think, pragmatic and, and nonpartisan in the way that it grapples with this problem. And I, I see it as, as an additional tool, po potentially powerful one that goes beyond the gun debate that we are eternally stuck in. That's an important debate, but we all know what the issue is with progress there, right? Right. Um, so yeah, there are some real challenges to scaling this method as, as an additional tool. I think one is awareness. As you say, many people have never even heard of this, which is kind of remarkable because it's existed for a long time and it is going on in a lot of places. There are actually a handful of states now that require this in, in public schools. That, that is a recent development in the last few years. And that has tended to follow um, major traumatic mass shootings, school shootings primarily. Um, after Parkland, uh, several states moved to, to have threat assessment programs required in schools. Um, so there is a growing awareness, but I think it needs to become much broader. And then the field itself, you know, the leaders in this field who I've talked to about this a lot, um, all acknowledge that 
you know, the bar is relatively high to getting community engagement with this. And that's very important because as I was saying earlier, a lot of these cases begin with tips from the public. Right. And so people have to A, understand what this is, B, I mean, they need to even know it exists to begin with, understand the basic premise, which is, you know, seeing the warning signs and getting help to people before it's too late. And then there has to be community trust, right? Um, and I think that's particularly challenging in the current era when we have so much political polarization and trust in law enforcement is has been called into question for very serious reasons again. Um, so it's incumbent on the people who do this work to engage more with the community to explain what they're doing and how it works, and then to show good case outcomes. And it's tricky because these cases are sensitive. Right. Right. <laughs> right. There are also cases of things that didn't happen, which is much more difficult to prove that you have averted something than that you have punished somebody for doing something that's already occurred. Is there a way to talk about the school shootings that have been averted by the districts that that put this kind of plan in place? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, right? And I, I it's at the center of writing about it. I take that on the book, too. You're talking about showing results is proving a negative. Um, right. You, you know, how do you know you prevented violence if violence doesn't occur? Um, so one of the things I tried to, to really accomplish with the book is to tell stories where this has worked really well to show that narratively. Um, and there are many cases that I gained access to where when you look at the facts of the case, um, these are people who were in serious crisis and setting up for some very scary looking situations, um, you know, explicit evidence of planning violence, taking steps to prepare for it, gaining access to weapons. Um, and then, you know, there's an intervention and a, a longer term period of work to help improve that person's situation and steer them away from violent thinking, what, what the field calls the pathway to violence. It's, it's an, a process of escalation towards an attack. Um, so often there's, there's a length of time to intervene, um, and seeing the results of that, you know, I, I can say from, from looking at these cases and, and interviewing the people who handled them at length and studying the case files, that these were situations where you can say with near certainty that they would have led to a violent act if there hadn't been this type of intervention. So I think that is the way in which the field can show results, but expressing that, of course, is, is tricky. Um, both in terms of the sensitivity of, of confidentiality in a lot of cases with mental health or legal considerations. And then also, ultimately, you are showing something that didn't happen, right? So it's a counterfactual right. conclusion. Um, but I think, you know, in telling the stories of some of these cases, I try to make that clearer through the book. And I think, you know, maybe more importantly for people who do the work of threat assessment, they need to find ways to continue to explain and express that to the public. I feel like we've, we've seen, a, a so I, I graduated high school the year before Columbine. So the entirety of my adult life has been in, in, in the, the realm of school shootings where that was, that was something that was normal, but I didn't grow up with it as a kid. Um, I have seen huge changes in how the media covers these events remembering yes. the the Virginia Tech shooter, the, the A1 above the fold shot of his face holding guns we don't we don't do that kind of thing anymore. There's sort of an understanding that 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 sort of coverage has the, a backlash effect. It lionizes the the shooter and it creates copycats. So now we focus more on the victims. We don't repeat the name of the shooter as much as we used to. 
Um, we talk about the lives lost. We we focus on those stories. Is is that a good trajectory? Is that is that positive in the realm of prevention, or are, are there are there additional different things? Like, what role does media coverage have to play today in preventing school shootings specifically? Yeah, I, I think it's great progress. It's a it's a very positive development. It, it isn't, of course, going to fix the problem, but it can contribute to doing better with this issue. Um, I do write about this at length in the book. The role of the media and the and social media more broadly is very important and very impactful on this issue that we have in the country that recurs over and over. The case research shows there are a lot of perpetrators of school and mass shootings who identify with predecessors and are seeking sensational media attention. This kind of goes to the core issues of grievance and, and rage and despair and, and pathology. These are people who want, want to be somebody and they feel like they're nobodies and they're angry and they're seeking that attention. So when the media gives it to them in excessive and sensational ways, historically, that has exacerbated the problem in some ways. Um, this was an area of concern that I started focusing on years ago in my reporting and started advocating for change, and others have too. And I think we have seen significant change, as you say, that is positive, uh, because it is, while it's it's very important that we report on these events, they're strongly in the public right. interest to understand the impact. And, and um, I think that, you know, it's really a matter of a balancing act. I, I talk about a term that I arrived at in the book called strategic diminishment. Where and mm. what, I, what I mean by that is that we, we do need to provide this information. We do need to report on it. This is a significant problem we have in America. But at the same time, we can do that without putting their big pictures above the fold, repeating them on television over and over, showing the images of them posing, looking sinister with guns on social media, which is what they put them there for. Right. They, they want people to see that, right? Um, we can report that they've done that without showing it. I and mean, there's a lot of nuance here, right? So... I think that the trend away from that is really good, uh, but there's more that I think the media needs to do to reframe the narrative around this problem. That relates more, in my view, to myths. We, we continue to repeat myths about this problem, that all mass shooters are insane, that they just snap, that, that this is all about mental illness, that mental illness is the cause of all these attacks. That is not, none of that is true. Um, it's much more nuanced and, and complicated, and, and it's important that we don't just simplify it and blame it on those things, because then we sort of stay stuck in this narrative that, oh, nothing will ever change, and, and we can't really do anything about this, but we can. Right. Getting us right back to the Onion article, all of those factors are in places in other countries where this doesn't happen. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you is what misunderstandings do you want to clear up? But I feel like you just did a brilliant job of answering that. And I'm going to, like, I will be listening for different things in the coverage of these events going forward than I have in the past. The book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark Pullman, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been hugely illuminating. It was great talking with you. Thanks a lot for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.